You're listening to the Thesis Review Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Wellick. I'm a PhD student at New York University, and my research focuses on machine learning, natural language processing, and structured prediction. On the Thesis Review, I'll interview researchers from around the field, centering the conversation around their PhD thesis. In addition to exploring the technical content, this will give insight into their history as a researcher, allow us to revisit older ideas, and provide a valuable perspective on how their research and the field itself has evolved since their PhD days. My guest today is John Schoolman, who is a research scientist and co-founder of OpenAI. John co-leads the reinforcement learning team, researching algorithms that safely and efficiently learn by trial and error and by imitating humans. His PhD thesis is titled Optimizing Expectations, From Deep Reinforcement Learning to Stochastic Computation Graphs, which he completed in 2016 at UC Berkeley. We talk about his work on stochastic computation graphs and TRPO, how it evolved to PPO, and how it's now used in large-scale applications like OpenAI 5. Then we discuss his recent work on generalization in RL and discuss the limits of scale, model-free versus model-based algorithms, GPT-3, and more. The thesis review is available on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. And be sure to follow on Twitter at Thesis Review. If you would like to support the show, you can contribute a dollar at buymeacoffee.com slash thesis review. There are links to his thesis and papers that we mentioned in the show notes. Here's John Schoolman with Optimizing Expectations from Deep Reinforcement Learning to Stochastic Computation Graphs on the Thesis Review. If you could think about framing doing a PhD as a reinforcement learning problem, where do you see the current methods uh, failing on this problem or, or would they succeed? That's an interesting question. So one interpretation of the question is if we, uh, we design a, a task where um, the, uh, each, in each episode you have a five-year process of doing a PhD and you get a reward based on how good the PhD is. Uh, that would, um, well, that would certainly be a hard RL task. I mean, you have a very uh, sparse reward signal, um, not a very informative reward. You only get like one bit of information each uh, five-year um, episode. Um, so I think um, if if somehow you had a way to do um, like millions of episodes of, of this, um, you, you might um, you might be able to um, at least get some see some improvement, but uh, I don't think that's a very um, realistic way to, to set it up. So I think, I don't think you would uh, have an easy time like uh, optimizing a scientific researcher that way or a, a, let's say a researcher AI. So you just need a completely different approach. Yeah, I think you'd probably want a different approach. Uh, so I don't think, I don't think we certainly don't learn this way. We don't learn to um, optimize for long-term uh, goals by uh, through anything that looks like um, discounted um, discounted uh, reward maximization. So I think right. probably the key thing is to uh, be able to work with shorter-term rewards and to I don't know to get a dense reward signal um, that um, measures progress towards long-term goals. So you need to to somehow have agents that form long-term goals. And um, 
um, you get a dense reward function that measures progress towards these goals, um, but you're not necessarily optimizing, like you're not do, you're not uh, setting up the problem the, the way I described initially. Unless you could somehow use everyone in parallel, <laughs> but oh yeah, I guess if there are a lot of uh, PhD students, you can get a lot of data. Let's talk about the the long term planning that that you did. So so before the PhD, what was your sort of background and um, yeah, like when did you pick up an interest in machine learning and decide to to take on a PhD? I was interested in AI and machine learning um, since uh, at least I was in high school uh, to some extent, uh, though the field was a bit less exciting back then. So I remember um, re- reading this book by uh, Nils Nilsson, who is one of the, the pioneers, and he, he wrote a nice uh, textbook that had everything from uh, A star search to um, like some basic um, basic ideas of MLPs, mm-hmm. um, but uh, the things you could do were pretty limited. So um, while I thought it was a it was a very cool topic, I wasn't I didn't really see what what I should do there. And mm-hmm. uh, yeah, then then in college I got more interested in machine learning and also neuroscience. Mm-hmm. Um, and I ended up deciding to go to grad school in neuroscience, not in machine learning. And I figured I learn about how intelligence works by studying brains, maybe using some machine learning tools. Um, but then once I got to Berkeley and started my PhD, I and uh, was looking around at different labs and so forth, I realized, well, I happened to be, I, I was around a lot of machine learning people, like the uh, the uh, office I um, where I uh, spent most of my time, I was surrounded by people in, um, in the, uh, computer science department working on machine learning. So I um, started to get more interested in in that uh, that area. And then I eventually I was able to switch uh, switch fields. What was it about machine learning that drew you away from neuroscience? The progress was much more tangible. And I found that I was more interested in, in the work that was coming out in machine learning. And I, I was finding it more insightful about how, uh, how you might build an intelligence. So um, we might hope that uh, by studying brains, we would learn a lot about how how a mind works, but actually, it's obviously very hard. And uh, I felt like I was getting more insight from uh, thinking about machine learning. Do you ever go back and try to think from a neuroscience perspective for machine learning problems, or I don't think about it at the level of computation, or at I don't try to uh, I don't think of it by uh, looking at by trying to um, use some understanding of how the brain works. If anything, I just think about what, what humans do and, uh, or what animals are able to do and appeal to introspection a bit. Um, but I don't really use much of the knowledge I, I got from studying neuroscience. I see. And then, so reinforcement learning specifically, um, how did you decide to kind of narrow in to focus on that? I spent the first half of my PhD working on uh, robotics and uh, well, with some machine learning uh, mixed in. So I was looking at things like, um, I was looking at trajectory optimization and how to learn from demonstrations. And uh, there, was, there was a little bit of machine learning, but not, not too much. Um, at least it wasn't clear exactly how you would apply. It wasn't clear to me how you would apply powerful machine learning techniques to make the stuff we were doing better. It didn't seem like the bottleneck was learning some uh, 
learning some function from data. We just didn't have the, the data we needed to do anything. And also at that time, there were a lot of other, there's a lot of exciting progress in robotics, like the Connect came out and uh, the, uh, there, like, there were some um, new, better robots that were available. So people were making a lot of progress there. And I got interested. Like I thought that was a pretty exciting time in robotics. But then uh, after a couple of years, two or three years doing it, I, I started to feel like um, a lot of the, the progress was kind of illusory or um, like you would, um, you would go uh, try to cr um, create a, a great demo for your project. You would show a robot doing something cool and, and impressive. And, uh, and then you would show how your, your new ideas were responsible for that. But in reality, it was, um, these, uh, systems were very brittle and, uh, most of the, um, most of the work came in just getting the, uh, whole system set up properly so that you could apply your idea. Um, uh, like that was only, your idea was only like 5% of what made, made your demo possible. Yeah. Everything seemed kind of, it seemed like, uh, everything we was, we, we were doing was kind of hacky and, um, at this, at that time, the ImageNet results came out from Kraszewski, uh, uh, Sutzgever, and Hinton. This is the uh, the big paper where they used uh, ConvNets to um, beat all to uh, like blow past state of the art on ImageNet classification. And mm -hmm. uh, when that came out, I was um, some that uh, kind of shook my my worldview and made me realize that there is something uh, some other possibility um, and like that maybe. Uh, we should think really think about how to use, um, we should think about how to use deep learning for problems like robotics. Um, and maybe that was the future, but it wasn't clear exactly uh, how you would use machine learning for robotics or for tasks where there's some kind of um, um, action or interaction with the outside world. Mm -hmm. um, but then thinking about it a little more, it became kind of clear that the, the ultimate way to do this was, uh, was reinforcement learning. Like, uh, RL is, mm. RL is the, uh, like the, the problem description that's relevant to, uh, uh, training to getting agents that act in, in the world. So at that time, RL was, um, kind of theoretic, like a lot more theoretical than it is now. And, uh, it wasn't clear which of the families of algorithms that are going to actually work. So I spent, spent a lot of time, um, trying to understand which RL algorithms were, um, were most promising. Just some background for the listeners. So you started your PhD probably right when right when deep learning was kind of having this uh, resurgence in reinforcement learning itself. It was like just the first results were just starting to come out. Yeah, uh, yeah. So I'll give the, I'll say a little bit more about the chronology. So I started my PhD in uh, 2010, and uh, that was um, right around the time that uh, deep uh, there were some um, exciting results with deep belief nets uh, from. Mm -hmm mostly from Hinton's lab. And uh, I thought those resu results were pretty exciting, but it was also um, like not clearly revolutionary. And uh, the ideas were kind of complicated and it wasn't clear how general they were. So I, I think it was only starting to get it interesting at, at that time. And then it really picked up around, uh, then it really picked up in around 2012, a couple of years later or 2013. Mm -hmm. And uh, I started uh, getting into reinforcement learning maybe early 2013, and uh, that's before that. That was um, right before uh, DQN 
uh, like, like be mine DQN results came out. Um, there were some other, there, there were some other good RL results that happened around that time that I can go into more, but, uh, yeah, that's, mm -hmm. that's a rough overview of the timeline. Yeah, I see. So when, do you remember like when you saw results like, um, the DQN paper, did you kind of know that it was inevitable that deep learning was going to be, um, kind of incorporated into reinforcement learning and that was the way forward or yeah. What was it like to be a researcher around that time? Yeah. Um, I'd say I, uh, got, I was pretty sold on, um, on deep learning plus reinforcement learning a little before DQN. So in that way, I had a little bit of a head start um, over everyone else who just started to uh, look at it after that. Um, so yeah, I, at that point, I was pretty sold on it. I mean, especially um, there are a lot of things we take for granted now that uh, weren't that obvious back then. Like um, we were uh, like the whole idea that you can. Um, uh, well, back then, people were thinking about um, POMDPs as uh, something that was fundamentally much harder than MDPs. Mm. Uh, like people were thinking about, uh, like, like in robotics, people were thinking about all sorts of fancy methods for solving POMDPs. Mm. And, and it was generally considered to be a super hard problem. Uh, but uh, then, um, so, and I'd initially, uh, yeah, I had initially, I initially thought it was hard. But then after thinking about it some more, I realized... Well, if you just have an RNN, um, this will uh, that that effectively um, lets you look at the whole state, which is just the history of observations, and you can so just training an R RNN policy with policy gradients seems like it should be able to solve POMDPs. And uh, I get I was really blown away by this um, by this insight, and I remember giving a lab meeting talk about it. Um, uh, and now it's kind of obvious, like everyone knows this, but uh, it was exciting to kind of go through that um, thought process at the time. And then you mentioned you were um, going back and, and trying to see which algorithms would be applicable. Did that have to do with this shift to deep learning where maybe you were going back and looking at older methods and trying to see whether you could use or adapt something from the past that would work with the newer methods? Yeah, that's that's exactly right. So there are a lot of um, there are a lot of different, totally different algorithms for uh, solving MDPs, and uh, it wasn't clear which ones were going to be compatible with using neural nets as function approximators. And people had worked on this a little bit, but um, the literature was still uh, um, like pretty primitive. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess we could start going into the, the content of the thesis. So maybe just to start off, I mean, we've mentioned reinforcement learning uh, many times now, but if you could just give like your own definition of, of reinforcement learning and then at a high level, which aspects you chose to focus on during your PhD? Yeah, I would say uh, reinforcement learning is is how to uh, learn to act. So uh, how to solve problems where um, an agent is interacting with an external world that's unknown to it. This contrasts with other kinds of learning where you, um, uh, you have a, a loss function that you have a loss function that is all uh, like it's just a, a something you ha have analytic access to. Like in supervised learning, you have a you just have a loss function, which is some uh, um, some nice differentiable function, and you optimize mm -hmm. it. But in, in RL, you're optimizing through some kind of uh, unknown system is part of your optimization problem, and uh, so RL is about how to how to deal with that. You have a really nice so in the in the background section, 
you have this really nice kind of taxonomy of different uh, RL methods. So it's divided into like policy optimization and dynamic programming. And so from policy optimization comes these policy gradient methods. And then from dynamic programming comes these value-based methods like, like Q-learning. And you mentioned that at the time, at least, methods like Q-learning kind of weren't well understood and are maybe less stable than policy gradients. Where do you kind of stand on that today? Do you, do you, do you think by now people have sort of figured out how to get Q-learning to work good enough or would you still prefer one over the other? I think a lot has happened since I wrote the thesis, uh, though the basic, um, I think my um, like basic uh, view there um, it still is uh, holds true. So I think the policy gradient methods are, uh, are uh, simpler to understand and to analyze. And, um, and given a new problem, you're going to have an easier time getting policy gradient methods to work on it, especially if you're not... Um, like if you don't care about sample efficiency that much, I think the value-based methods will, uh, you can usually get them to work and um, uh, get better sample efficiency once they do work. And, and they're still not as well understood. It, I, I still think we don't have, um, I still think there's a lot to do there in terms of improving them and making them more reliable. So they're, they're just uh, less well understood, but once you get them to work, they're more sample efficient, but usually less compute efficient. So I think one mm. one big question right now is we're not going to ever be in the regime where computation is free. So if you're in a regime where uh, computation is expensive, I mean, where, when you're using really big models, um, then in what cases do value-based methods uh, have an advantage? Yeah, so still more to, to understand about yeah. them. Yeah. And then, um, so your thesis, it's kind of structured into these three parts. So trust region, policy optimization, uh, the generalized advantage estimation, and then stochastic computation graphs. I thought we'd actually um, start with the last one, so the stochastic computation graphs. Mm -hmm. What is a stochastic computation graph, and sort of how does it relate to reinforcement learning? Yeah, so stochastic computation graph is, you could call it a, um, a kind of notation or a, a general description language for a certain wide class of of uh, optimization problems that includes reinforcement learning. Yeah, it's a way of describing a problem um, where you have um, you have some random variables that depend on other random variables. Like you have, let's say, an action, which is a random variable that the policy samples, or a next state, which is like uh, in an MDP where it's like uh, the environment uh, transitions randomly to a new state. So you've got like random variables, and then you've also got some deterministic operations, like your neural net um, uh, might have a bunch of different differentiable operations. Um, so if you're uh, given a description of your, like how you compute the loss in terms of these components, um, how do you compute the gradient of that loss? Or, or really, how do you get an unbiased estimator of the gradient? The ideas aren't um, like terribly new, or, or I, I feel like the um, like people have been writing down loss functions that involve all of these pieces for a long time, and the uh, and, and people know how to we're, we're calculating the derivatives of these things. But uh, every paper um, would uh, have a different um, like description of how you calculate the the gradient, and often like a very convoluted description. Um, so 
I, I was annoyed enough at reading these papers that I felt like we should just write down a standard way of describing these problems. And like, I felt like we should just um, like remove the need for everyone to do their own derivation or give a standard, mm -hmm. standard method. Yeah, it is a really nice, um, yeah, like a nice formalism that summarizes a lot of things. So like uh, you talk about like the pathwise estimator versus the score function estimator. So the pathwise would be something like this reparameterization trick that people use in VAEs, right? Mm -hmm. And then score function would be like policy gradient. Like looking back on, on this work, like do you still think that this influences the way you think about these problems or? Um... Yeah, definitely. Uh, I think uh, it's definitely my uh, go-to method of, uh, of figuring out how to calculate the gradient of something. Like uh, if you have a, um, policy gradient. Um, if you want to calculate the policy gradient with uh, when you have like entropy bonuses or you have some differentiable rewards, um, mm -hmm. this is a good way to do it. Those are problems that come up uh, pretty commonly. Like like if the reward function is something you have uh, you, that's uh, differentiable and you know it analytically, then you can use this kind of method to get a more efficient gradient estimator. Mm -hmm. I, I think it just um, it's just an easy. It makes the calculations easier if you just this is like a mechanical way to do the calculation instead of having to think really hard about it each time so do you think that this has some implications for the way deep learning libraries are designed because um, i know a lot of the times people just implement their own policy gradient or something do you think that somehow we could program a stochastic computation graph if that makes sense yeah i was uh, hoping for something like that when uh when we wrote the paper and uh mm. it there was some other, there was some excitement about that. Like PyTorch, um, uh, like PyTorch had some features that were were based, or, or they they initially had a, um, a library that was um, based on this idea, um, where you could. Um, I, I don't remember exactly how it worked, but they they had some way you could uh, you could add like reinforced type uh, great gradient um, estimators. Um, it never quite. Um, I would say this never quite came together because it turned out. Um, it turned out that you know, like whenever you're doing something like RL, you you usually make a, a lot of uh, approximations that, or you you take into account the structure of the problem to make to do variance reduction and other kinds of uh, in, like improvements or speed ups. So, for example, using discounting and uh, you do discounting and value functions and so on. Yeah, somehow it hasn't been useful to to build to put this into libraries because uh, people want to do various domain-specific uh, tricks. Sort of having the flexibility is, um, yeah, is important enough to not just incorporate it into the library. Yeah. Uh, there were some ideas that we would um, uh, eventually have much more complicated uh, models, or we would, have, uh, we would be doing hierarchical RL, where there would be actions at multiple different levels. And uh, mm. this kind of thing would get really complicated. Um, and you, it would be better if you had a library to figure out the gradients. Um, but in practice, these methods never became that popular. And um, now very simple methods have are winning. And in the, those simple methods, there's no uh, need for a library to calculate, uh, to, to do these calculations. Yeah, so people thought the way to solve a PhD was with reinforcement learning with these hierarchical actions. Yeah, that's right. I think the main section I want to talk about is um, the one on TRPO. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so maybe if you could just give an overview of what is TRPO first, and maybe how did you start 
working uh, in this area? So this is like a model-free algorithm. How did you decide to focus your attention on that? Yeah. Um, so what is uh, TRPO? It's uh, so policy gradient methods are um, are kind of our reinforcement learning algorithm where. Um, as as it sounds like you're trying to calculate um, uh, you're trying to calculate the gradient of performance with respect to the policy parameters, and uh, you calculate a stochastic gradient like we do usually in deep learning, and you uh, take a small step in the gradient direction. Uh, but mm -hmm. the point of like policy gradient methods differ from other RL algorithms in that we're just directly trying to optimize the policy as opposed to doing something indirect like learning a value function and trying to use that. So. Mm -hmm. uh, TRPO is um, like in so TRPO trust region policy optimization. Um, the idea is uh, we don't want to take uh, too big of a step in any kind of stochastic uh, gradient descent. You don't want to take too big of a step because um, you're um, you just have a gradient, and uh, if you step too far, your um, loss is probably going to get worse. But uh, this problem is particularly bad in RL because the um, the your policy also d depends what uh, your your policy determines what data you're collecting. So if you take too big of a step, uh, you're going to calculate. You're going to um, collect completely different data, and uh, and now you won't be able to fix your policy. So it, mm -hmm. unlike in supervised learning, where uh, the data doesn't depend on uh, the, your current uh, your current function, the the consequences of making too big of an update kind of uh, propagate in the sense that you'll start collecting bad data and then update on that bad data. Yeah, exactly. So with TRPO, um, the idea is uh, we um, introduce a trust region. So we that that means uh, so a trust region in optimization is a uh, smaller um, part of your parameter space where uh, your local approximation to performance is accurate. So, mm -hmm. so one way of um, seeing why you have to take small steps in optimization is that uh, whenever you um, like what you do in optimization is you try to get a local approximation to your performance, uh, meaning you, you try to approximate what would happen if my um, policy or my parameters were a little bit different. And uh, then you try to take a step in the improvement direction, but you're always using an approximation. So um, your approximation is only accurate around your starting point. And a um, the idea of a trust region algorithm is you say, um, maximize my estimated performance uh, subject to a constraint that I stay close to the starting point. So that's exactly what uh, TRPO does. It, the, the algorithm is to get a local approximation of the policy performance, and then you uh, take a then you uh, you maximize that local approximation uh, subject to the constraint that your KL divergence from your initial pol policy is uh, small. Do, do you remember how you got this? idea? Was it kind of from, you could think about optimization just abstractly and maybe come up with this idea that you shouldn't update too far? Or is it from, I don't know, running a lot of experiments and you got some intuition that this type of update would be a good idea? Do you remember like, yeah, what was the origin of, of this idea? Let's see, there were a couple of inputs. So one, one thing you could contrast uh, TRPO to is policy iteration, which is this algorithm where you don't do an, a small update. You, you first, uh, you collect a bunch of data, um, you fit your value function, and then you solve for the optimal policy, or you solve for the policy um, determined by that value function. So TRPO is um, 
so there's is connected to that, but um, it, it's uh, it does an incremental update instead of a, a big update. Um, so mm -hmm. I would say the two like the, the two papers uh, that influenced me the most were um, this paper called uh, Conservative Policy Iteration uh, from uh, Kakad and Langford uh, from around uh, when like 2000. Um, and this was uh, the idea there was they pointed out that uh, policy iteration has problems when there's any kind of error in esti like in your estimating the value function. So they they fixed it by um, not fully updating uh, the policy each iteration. Instead, uh, they mixed it, they calculate a new policy and just take a mixture between the new one and the old ones, uh, kind of like in boosting. That, that was one influence. Oh, and they had a lot of theory and they had some very nice theory in that paper. And uh, the theory in TRPO is largely based on their theory. Um, but mm, I, uh, I realized that they uh, like there is a way to um, to use their theory in, in a like um, in, in a more kind of practically uh, relevant um, type of algorithm. And the other uh, paper that was influential was there was this paper that came out well, I read it a couple months before uh, 2013 NIPS called uh, uh, Approximate Dynamic Programming Finally Performs Well in the Game of Tetris. It's a funny uh, title, <laughs> very, very direct. Uh, there should be an acronym for that. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, so, so it's just what it sounds like. They, uh, they showed um, that, that you can do well in um, Tetris uh, with, uh, I mean, the problem was te uh, like Tetris has been an RL benchmark for a long time, but the RL methods were are, have always been worse than uh, like direct optimization in parameter space using methods like uh, CMA. Mm. Uh, and this paper uh, had a bunch of tricks that um, that made um, approximate dynamic programming and specifically uh, policy iteration work better. Mm -hmm. So um, so I had actually started out by. Um, I had implemented their algorithm and uh, and I was getting pretty good results with it on the problems I was working on, um, mm -hmm. like much better than I was getting with other approaches. And I had also read the conservative policy iteration paper. And uh, like I, I kind of um, I felt like the idea of the um, incremental updates or, or taking these small updates was very important. Mm -hmm. So I ended up like I started out doing various hacky things where I would I would mix these two ideas together. But at a certain point, I realized uh, I, I kind of realized that the way uh, conservative policy iteration mixed together the policies, um, like that was basically just uh, constraining the um, th that effectively constrained the KL divergence between the the policies, and and that was the or or the total variation divergence between the new policy and the data collection policy. And I realized that we can just uh, we can just come up with a um, like we can do this in other ways, and uh, like uh, like the trust region uh, method is kind of a more natural way to do this when you've got a a, mo a more powerful function approximator like a neural net. So I then I like implemented I, I did various hacky versions of this, and then then I kind of did it properly, and it worked really well. Um, and that's kind of yeah. that was the birth of TRPO. Yeah, that's really interesting. Like a combination of yeah, reading past ideas, thinking about what they're doing, but then also just trying to get something to work and then thinking about how to do it, um, maybe like in a principled type of way. Mm -hmm. So then speaking of, of principled, um, so like one thing in this paper is that there is this theory that's used. Uh, there's like this monotonic improvement uh, that you show. 
Did that actually come after you got this to work or, or before? Yeah, I'd say that um, the theory, uh, like figuring out all the the details of the theory came after getting it to work, uh, though I actually found that when I, um, that doing the, um, like doing the trust region uh, constraint properly uh, was pretty important to getting it to work reliably. So mm-hmm. um, like the way, the version that we propose in the paper um, uses, um, like uses the conjugate gradient algorithm, like like there's some details that uh, like don't no one cares about anymore. But uh, like the way we did it in the paper, we uh, we basically uh, take the a step in the natural gradient direction, and then we um, then we uh, shrink it to be the exactly the right length. Um, so there's a certain KL divergence between the new policy and the old policy. I had first tried to do this in some some hacky ways, uh, but actually doing a uh, correct like doing a proper line search where you make sure that the um, like if you take too big of a step, you shrink it until it's the right size. Uh, doing that um, ended up being really important to getting the whole thing to work. So I think uh, the theory, or that wasn't exactly what was in the theory, but yeah, doing, I guess I'll say that doing it properly um, like did make a big difference. Yeah, at the time, everyone was trying to use TRPO when this came out. And I remember uh, your implementation with this like conjugate gradient and the line search it was like this magic implementation that everyone was looking at. So I still have, still have good memories of, of reading that code. Yeah. It seems like, um, maybe these ideas kind of stayed with you because you were, you also worked on this algorithm called PPO Mm -hmm. and there seems to be some connections between the two. Yeah. Yeah. PPO, uh, kind of came as a natural, uh, extension of PPO or TRPO. Um, Mm -hmm. TRPO was um, like did well at a certain set of problems, um, but uh, while I was trying to get it to work on uh, harder problems, uh, I, I ran into two issues. Uh, so I never quite um, got as good. I, I never quite um, uh, was able to match uh, most of the uh, DQN results on Atari, and mm. uh, and then the um, like the A three C results that came afterwards. Um, TRPO, uh, yeah, still, I, I wasn't able to quite match uh, those A3C results. So I felt like um, maybe the uh, conjugate gradient um, is not uh, that compatible with um, these uh, deep neural networks. And I still don't mm-hmm. totally understand why. I mean, people have uh, people have some theories about it. Um, now people seem to think uh, a better way to do this is uh, KFAC, um, like a better way to natural gradient step is KFAC because um, somehow the uh, the noise in the um, when you're when you're doing your uh, like the the second order information you uh, you get with uh, um, with conjugate gradient um, is uh, too noisy and it doesn't help very much uh, but anyway uh, yeah I, I I felt like uh, uh, TRPO wasn't that good on uh, these problems with uh, larger neural nets and especially with RNNs. So I was trying to around that time, like uh, late 2015, early 2016. I was trying, I, I was uh, trying to get good results with RNNs, and I, I was interested in things like hierarchical RL and uh, the early versions of uh, meta learning. And uh, mm. I wanted RNNs to work really well, but TRPO was. Uh, I was just having trouble getting good results with TRPO. Oh, oh and also another issue was that the. Uh, um, it's hard to mix in um, other loss functions. 
in with TRPO. So if you have, uh, mm. if you have like, so TRPO, if you just have, you're trying to optimize your policy loss subject to a constraint, um, then it's fine. But let's say you have, um, let's say you have other uh, loss terms like a, uh, like some auxil auxiliary prediction or um, like you have your value, value function loss. Uh, TRPO doesn't uh, say anything about how much you should um, update on these other uh, loss functions. And uh, mm. the CG conjugate gradient doesn't really do the right thing when you have like some parameters that aren't uh, part of your uh, policy computation, but are doing something else like uh, value function prediction. So anyway, uh, I wanted to come up with a version of TRPO that just used SGD. Like the most straightforward thing to do is to use a soft, uh, is to use a penalty instead of a constraint. And con penalties are basically equivalent to constraints anyway. Uh, so mm -hmm. the, na the naive version would be to just add a KL, uh, a penalty between the KL divergence of the new policy and the old one. That that and and that actually kind of works. That's okay. Um, but it was it's also a little bit hard to uh, get that to um, get a uh, uh, a single hyperparameter that works through the whole training process and that works through uh, multiple problems uh, with that approach. So um, uh, the PPO uh, paper pr proposes a loss function, which is uh, which achieves this uh, same goal of uh, like. Um, uh, it gives you the, like, uh, tries to update in the policy gradient direction, but like tries to prevent the uh, too big of an update. Uh, but it just mm -hmm. uh, is the version of the loss that empirically worked the best. And uh, it seems to have been uh, withstood the uh, test of time, at least for the, from through the past uh, three or four years. Yeah. Yeah, I see. Yeah, I, I think this one, um, like reading through this paper, it seems like it was a different motivation almost like th this was really focusing on uh, kind of the simplicity maybe and um, less so maybe the theory. Would you agree with that? And in, in general, like, do you have some general view of like the place of theory and in, in reinforcement learning? Yeah, that's right. The PPO paper was mostly, um, there, there wasn't a, a much of a theory behind it and uh, it's, there's just kind of an intuitive justification, but it was more mm -hmm. uh, the paper was focused on the just coming up with a simple method that seems to have some of the right properties. And there are some experiments showing that it was better than various other reasonable alternatives. Mm -hmm. I have a kind of moderate view on on the uh, the role of theory. So I think uh, I think if you can um, like provide a theory that um, that seems to uh, that seems to be predictive of what happens in reality. Then that's really good. Um, I, I think people overdo the theory a little bit, or, or at least the older um, RL literature overdoes it, and uh, people uh, put too much emphasis on the theory. And but the theories don't actually tell you which algorithms are going to work better. I, I think the theory is useful if it actually if it um, gives you a, a like a useful hint about what you should do algorithmically. So you're at, at OpenAI now, research scientist and a co-founder. Um, and, and one of the things that you guys worked on was this OpenAI 5 that used PPO. Could you yeah, maybe just give a, a brief description of what OpenAI 5 was and how did you, what was it like deciding to use this algorithm? Were you sure that it was going to be the answer? Yeah. Um, 
So OpenAI 5 is the, uh, it was a, a project where we applied, um, where we did a large scale RL on the game of Dota, a popular, uh, com popular computer game. And uh, mm -hmm. we used uh, self-play, which is where you, um, you're not uh, like, up, you don't have one agent playing against a fixed environment. You rather have two agents playing against each other, but you can still use a, a policy gradient method um, by just uh, like you pretend one of the players is fixed is, is the environment and you calculate the policy gradient under that assumption. Um, mm -hmm. And then you can do the same thing the other way around for the other player. Um, and and uh, like unlike normal RL where you see your reward going up here, there's no reward that goes up because it's a zero sum game. Uh, but mm -hmm. instead you see that uh, you see that um, some kind of rating of the agent goes up as measured by uh, its win rate against other uh, other agents. So in mm -hmm. particular, we looked at true skill, which is a way to which is like a rating system where you have pairwise comparisons. Like you 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 do face offs and combine those to get a, a score. So yeah. It, uh, anyway, um, so this was a project that was running for for a while, and we started off uh, just doing one versus one, like an easy version easier version of the game uh and then eventually scaled it up to um uh five versus five and uh it's um and it's probably it's the biggest or uh or second biggest uh or well one of the biggest uh rl experiments um ever run i guess the others mm -hmm. are like alphas alpha zero uh probably used more like well used a lot more neural net flops uh but uh maybe less um uh like computers uh less like cpus running video games let's uh, mm -hmm. uh starcraft uh the deep mind starcraft uh project was also a very large scale effort mm -hmm. um so anyway yeah eventually we got a uh we got a good enough uh bot that uh we were able to um beat the world champions in a in a match at, at least in a in a version of the game that was close to the uh like the full game or or it was basically the full game with some minor restrictions on like which uh characters were were playing right yeah at a high level i guess you could describe the the strategy as take um take a fairly like generic network architecture so i think this was an lstm mm -hmm. and then use ppo and train this this algorithm um on just many many games and that was actually turned out to be sufficient to beat the human players right yeah and i i was um actually i wasn't the uh like in, um, like making the decision on what algorithm to use. Uh, so I was only like uh, loose, I was only lightly involved. And uh, I was actually kind of skeptical of the idea of just using PPO for the whole thing. Um, well, well, I thought it might work, but uh, I figured, um, I mean, it's going to work with enough compute, but I don't know if we have enough compute to, to do this. <laughs> um, but uh, the people working on it just kept pushing it and it turned out that it was enough. Yeah, yeah, I see. Yeah, I thought maybe we should use other, um, like I, I thought maybe we should try value-based methods or we should lean more heavily on behavior cloning, but it turned out mm -hmm. that uh, self-play PPO went all the way. In terms of like, um, I mean, it was obviously a, a massive accomplishment to, you know, to, to beat the human players. In terms of like a scientific takeaway, what, yeah, what would be some of your takeaways from, from this problem, from this project? Yeah, I'd say um, first it shows that policy gradient self-play is um, is actually quite powerful. Um, mm. and, uh, 
yeah, th this uh, very basic algorithm works quite well um, with some uh, like some tricks, like um, like one of the tricks was uh, randomization, like uh, where you um, randomize various aspects of the game, like you make one player uh, like uh, have a s small advantage over the other. So um, like poly policy gradient self-play with randomization is quite powerful and and actually surprisingly reliable, whereas you might think it would diverge or get stuck in local optima or something or run run around in circles. Um, yeah, that that's in fact, if you just try to do, uh, if you try to do self-play training in general, on, even on simple problems like uh, rock, paper, scissors, you often find that it, um, you have trouble getting convergence. Uh, but yeah, with, with some of these, uh, like with a, some uh, like generally applicable tricks, uh, you can get it to work quite well. Mm -hmm. And previously, Alpha Zero had already shown that self-play is extremely powerful, but uh, they used a more complicated procedure that involves search. Um, so, uh, so they're um, like, it's not just uh, like doing policy gradient. They're um, like calculating really high quality um, target uh, target distributions over moves. Uh, so it wasn't clear that um, if you needed search or not to do well. And in fact, uh, I remember uh, various prominent people had predicted that uh, it wasn't going to work well because it didn't use search, but that turned out to be wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe when you're designing TRPO, would you have even thought that kind of one of the most important properties was the scalability at the time? And maybe nowadays we think of that as being very important. Yeah, I did actually think about uh, scalability as being important back then. I, I, I thought um, like the key thing is to just um, like get an algorithm that works kind of reliably. And then we can uh, like like at the time, we didn't seem to have algorithms that you could just um, we, we didn't seem we didn't have anything that was uh, like plausibly really scalable that, that could solve really hard problems if you threw a lot of compute at them. Um, mm -hmm. So, yeah, so I uh, kind of. Um, so TRPO was designed to be uh, somewhat scalable, but maybe I didn't appreciate all of the uh, all of the different uh, properties it needed to have, and I didn't know that the like the certainly TRPO is a uses second order ideas, and uh, I didn't know at the time that those uh, weren't going to be as scalable. Um, I still don't. Uh, I don't think we still understand exactly where second order methods fit in, um, but mm -hmm. yeah, it turned out that uh, that it. Uh, so far, they're, well, currently they're not um, the dominant approach. Do you have a sense of um, whether we know what the limits are to this model-free paradigm? Like whether they'll be sufficient for all of the all of the use cases? Like here, I think maybe it was surprising to some people that we thought that maybe uh, you needed something capable of doing like explicit planning or, or something like that in order to play Dota, whereas it was able to figure out something um just on its own with this model free method um yeah so like what's your sense on uh model free versus say like a model based type methods yeah i'm uh, still uh, pretty much a uh i'm a, still a strong believer in the model free methods it's i think just on the principle that we we should let our function approximators do all the work and all the calculations that we don't know exactly how to do so mm -hmm. with model based methods uh we have to tell the network something about how to search or something about how to um, plan and uh, or what to do with the, the model and how much to trust it. And I would rather right. have uh, 
I would just uh, train something rather just train something end to end so that the, the network uh, itself can implement the best possible algorithm. So I don't, I don't think it actually has any limits. I think it's, it's actually kind of, um, well, I don't think we necessarily, there's some uh, like open questions, but I don't think the, um, I don't see any limits to uh, model free RL. Uh, except I think maybe even like a bigger source of problems is, is actually the, uh, the whole alignment problem that, uh, if you have, um, that it's hard to get RL, um, systems to do what we actually want, that, uh, it's more likely that we get, uh, will like, if, if we have a reward function, the, um, the algorithm will find, uh, some, like some bad way to maximize it that we didn't intend. So, yeah, I see. I think that's a bigger problem actually. Yeah. Do you think that that might be that this alignment problem might be a place where our own intuitions or something have to be more baked into the solution or is there a purely data-driven way of doing that? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think um, some of the proposals for how to do alignment better involve kind of uh, using a more handcrafted approach uh, like, mm -hmm. um, sort of uh, like hand cr crafting a little bit, like how the, um, how the, the agent thinks. Um, ideally, I'd like to uh, like reduce the hand crafting as much as possible, uh, but mm -hmm. we have to, um, yeah, somehow we have to insert, um, we have to um, like, imp I don't know, we have to impose uh, some priors somehow. Some of the more promising ideas are just like um, how to uh, help um, people provide better supervision um, uh, on on the agents, or uh, like using one agent to help supervise another one, like um, using like uh, a like agents to help us uh, critique other agents, uh, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think uh, like some of these ideas are promising, and some of them involve like doing more handcrafting of what the how the agent works. But I, I think. Uh, those, if, if you have too much handcrafting, this, you're just not going to be competitive with approaches that are end to end. Mm -hmm. So yeah, those are the two sections that I want to cover from the PhD thesis. There's, there's another one on this generalized advantage estimation. Mm -hmm. Before we move on to some things that you're working on now, one thing that I've noticed is that Berkeley has become a really great place for reinforcement learning research. Mm -hmm. And obviously, like you were part of the, the process of that uh, evolution. Do you think that are, are there kind of takeaways that you have for what the environment was like there that made it such a great place to do research? Yeah, I can't take uh, too much credit for it. Uh, I think, uh, uh, though, yeah, I was one of the early people there doing it. I think uh, it's probably just uh, one of these things where there's a critical mass uh, of people who are uh, interested in, in that and uh, like uh, more people kind of, uh, clustered together there. Um, so people want to be around other, other people who are, uh, like at the forefront in their preferred, uh, field. So I think, uh, just the fact that, uh, like, like Peter Abiel was, uh, uh, like pushing this direction and then Sergey Levin, uh, like just a whole, um, that created, uh, a, kind of a nice, uh, critical mass, um, that, that grew and also probably the proximity uh, to like a lot of um, like some of the industry research labs in the Bay Area helped help create it like helped helped let uh, Berkeley become the kind of uh, the epicenter. 
Well, I think Berkeley uh, was a qu- uh, quite good environment um, for doing a, a PhD in that uh, there was just um, like, there's a good amount of like uh, communication between the different AI groups. Uh, so we were all on the same floor and kind of knew each other. Uh, so I think it was, it was easy to um, be exposed to a lot of ideas. I don't have, uh, uh, didn't know any, didn't notice any other mm-hmm. specific features. Yeah, yeah. No, I think that's, that's probably what it is, is that a lot of it comes back to, to the people. Mm-hmm. Uh, so having a lot of good people interested in, in similar things. Yeah. So then after your PhD, I guess we talked about PPO, but yeah, so, some other things like that you're maybe currently working on. Did you kind of continue streams of research from your PhD or did you also branch out into new areas? Sort of, yeah. I think uh, I think I've been sort of continually, uh, well, my area has been, my focus has been continually changing uh, mm-hmm. or gradually changing. Yeah. After I started Open OpenAI, I was um, still mostly uh, thinking about the, um, how to about the algorithms and how to design, uh, how to make our algorithm, like core algorithms better. Um, so I, I looked into, um, I, I worked on uh, hierarchical RL a little bit, um, that didn't quite pan out. I looked at, um, around, uh, uh, the time of PPO, I was also thinking about the connection to value-based methods. Then, uh, then I started getting more interested in, um, just how to, um, how to get RL to work, uh, with um, how, to, how to get RL to generalize more. So it kind of bothered me that uh, we're using RL is um, in RL, we were mostly focused on optimization, um, not generalization. So it's like we have problems where there's a, um, we have problems uh, that are kind of in, um, in some uh, simulation or in some uh, game. And uh, we're, mm-hmm. we're trying to optimize score on that, but uh, we don't think much about generalization to new situations. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't really resemble the other parts of machine learning where you, we have these big diverse data sets. Uh, so I wanted to think about how uh, how we can get better generalization in RL. And if maybe um, uh, that was the key to getting better sample efficiency, maybe uh, it's not, a, we don't have that much improvement that we can squeeze out by just uh, coming up with more clever algorithms. We should instead be uh, uh, trying to do pre-training or uh, like somehow mm-hmm. train on a diverse uh data set as a way of uh, speeding up um, learning something new. Mm-hmm. Uh, so so first, um, like uh, meta learning or meta RL was kind of one uh, one project in this direction. So uh, we did, wrote one, a paper about meta RL called RL squared. Mm-hmm. Uh, then I started getting, uh, like that was mostly in uh, like, that would only work in toy, like small uh, scale problems. So I got interested in uh, how, how can we actually create big data sets. Uh, so we we made this uh, data set called Jim Retro, which is like uh, lots of retro uh, video games. Mm-hmm. And we thought maybe if we uh, just train a, a network on all of those, it'll generalize to new games. Mm-hmm. And that turned out not to work. Uh, it turns out that these games aren't uh, like, uh, they're kind of more... Uh, conducive to memorization, not generalization. So you don't actually learn very much. Uh, you, you just kind of memorize one trajectory uh, for each game. Yeah. Same as with Atari. Then procedural generation. Then we basically realized uh, we we need to study the problem like more carefully and scientifically. So uh, we don't really know um, how the uh, like 
um, performance scales with data set size. So uh, let's just um, come up with a controlled environment where we can uh, where we can measure these measure generalization. Um, so that's when we started looking at uh, procedurally generated games. Mm-hmm. And, uh, we figured uh, let's let's just try to me- get let's let's try to get generalization in this controlled setting and uh, study how. Um, and once we have this, we can use it to, um, like, uh, we can study things like regularization. We can study which algorithms are better. Um, so anyway, that uh, ended up being quite fruitful for a couple of years. Um, I, I think, yeah, the, the procedurally generated games are much better than uh, Atari and some of the benchmarks people were using before. I, I don't recommend mm-hmm. anyone uh, to use Atari anymore or are these Majoko, uh like, 2D tasks. I think... Uh, these are kind of past their prime. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, one thing that comes to mind as you're saying this is like, wasn't there a paper that you could train a reinforcement learning agent to play Atari and then if you invert the colors or something like this, then it completely doesn't know what to do? Yeah, yeah, that um, that's right. I mean, uh, we're not really learning vision when we train these Atari agents. It's um, yeah, yeah. like so in the procedurally, gen- the proc gen uh, paper, we... Uh, we so we found that if you train on like 500 levels, you get a certain amount of generalization to the unseen levels. We have mm-hmm. like a Mario Mario like games that, where you have like a, a certain amount of randomly generated levels. So mm-hmm. uh, so we can measure like as a function of the number of levels, how do you how good is your test set performance? And mm-hmm. we found that if we uh, create a game that looks like a, an Atari game where uh, we have like a deterministic sequence of levels. Um, then you get uh, basically no generalization at all to uh, to any other levels. So you you learn perfectly well on this deterministic sequence of levels, and you see a nice looking learning curve, but you don't mm-hmm. learn anything about the other levels. So we're, so we're just in a totally uninteresting regime when we look at tasks like Atari. Yeah. So on this procedural generation, so I guess I guess you kind of mentioned it there that um, the idea is that you could you could vary the environment. And then train on many different instances, and then generalize to other levels in that environment. Um, have you thought about like what it takes to generalize across different games? Is that still really challenging? Yeah, yeah, I think that's the next uh, challenge. Uh, yeah, the problem is, I think, um, and that's what we were hoping to do with Jim Retro, but I, I, mm. I think Jim Retro isn't a sufficient uh, data set to do this, at least with current techniques. Uh, so I don't, um, right. So I, we'd like to see generalization between games, but I don't think it's, um, I don't think we're ready to get that result yet. Yeah. 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 It's just this, um, like the results that have been coming out on, uh, like GPT two and GPT three, it makes me think of, of this problem that potentially the answer is like set up the right large scale pre-training setup. And then some of these some of these problems fall away. Like you're able to just somehow do uh, um, like generalization or, or few shot learning or things like that. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder if that'll end up being applicable in this context. Yeah. I think you're right. I think that's the, I think that's the eventual solution. It's still not totally clear what, what kind of pre-training will help you on these sort of visual motor tasks. Um, that's, that remains to be seen. Yeah. Yeah. But I think that's right. Being at OpenAI now, I have to ask a question about uh, general intelligence. 
Mm-hmm. So uh, I think, so Jan LeCun said that reinforcement learning was uh, maybe going to be like a cherry on top of a cake where the whole cake is general intelligence. Yeah. Do you have a sort of view of how reinforcement learning will, will play a role? In- yeah. Yeah. Some uh, RL enthusiasts were uh, um, offended by uh, Jan's, uh, by Jan's statement there. And uh, I actually think he's basically correct. Um, mm. Yeah, I, I think that's mostly right that uh, RL just, um, it's its hard to extract a lot of information about the world um, just using um, just using RL, unless you also include with RL like all sorts of auxiliary uh, rewards or, or auxiliary predictions you might throw in. Um, but mm-hmm. yeah, I think from say the policy gradients, you're not going to extract that much world knowledge. So I, I agree with Jan that um, most of the learning comes from, uh, should come from some kind of unsupervised learning and also supervised learning when it's available. Um, I think RL, but, but you still need RL. Um, I think it's going to be um, like the problem with uh, supervised learning is you have to cover um, every possible. Um, you're basically covering the distribution of all humans that you've asked to perform your task. So like GPT has to learn a mixture of all humans, uh, mm. like whatever human might be typing right now. Uh, it's, um, it, it's some mixture of, of all of those possibilities. Um, and mm-hmm. uh, that's not what you actually want. What you actually want is, uh, you want, um, you, you want to do like, you have a specific objective and, uh, humans might not be optimal at that. And you don't necessarily, necessarily care about covering all the possibilities. You just want like one policy that does a good job on your objective. So I think, um, just mixing in a little bit of RL, uh, you can, um, get a massive improvement by just uh, narrowing down your distribution to to whatever works. Yeah, so so you somehow learn learn this mixture, and then RL maybe the cherry analogy is not the best, but yeah, it somehow narrows narrows it down to to what you want to focus on for that specific problem. Right. Yeah, I guess the cherry um, the the cake picture um, is sort of more about uh, representation learning, like uh, where you right. where you learn about the world and learn good representations. Uh, so I think, um, yeah, in the setting of doing like cloning and RL fine tuning, I would say it's, um, yeah, it's a little different because it's more like, uh, you're, you're just kind of narrowing down your distribution. But I also, um, I agree with the cake analogy that even if you don't have any cloning data, you, you can probably learn most of the representations from unsupervised learning and then just do a little RL on top and, uh, get, um, an agent that actually does something. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. So one thing you've you've wrote about in your blog is like how you pick problems. Um, so do you think that the way that you picked pro- certain problems or areas to work on did that change from when you were doing your PhD to to now when you're at OpenAI? Yeah, right. Yeah, I talked about um, idea like goal driven research, like solving a specific problem hard versus idea driven research. Yeah, I think actually the goal driven research uh, is. Um, yeah, I still mostly agree with that advice, and I would, uh, uh, I think uh, it's probably good advice for most most people, not for everyone, but uh, yeah, it's usually good, especially until you um, have a really good appreciation of your field and like what are the open problems in it. I think after you have a really good understanding, then you can start to directly uh, like directly address the flaws in the current methods. But um, I think uh, it, uh, like just trying thinking about how to solve new problems or problems that are that are hard is a pretty good way to um to go about 
coming up with figuring out what to do. So I basically still still endorse that advice. Yeah, this was this was good to go back, and it was really interesting to hear about like how the idea for TRPO was formed, uh, and then how it got extended into PPO, and it's been applied to large scale problems now. So it's a pretty cool story. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you.